Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ, Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is sure and true, a guide for us in difficult and dark times. We pray that as we look into 1 Peter, you would help us to understand better how we ought to live, what we ought to believe, and your good kindness to us in calling us as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me see. Imagine you're at a business meeting, a board meeting. You come in there with all the people who are running the company, and you get together and you're setting the plans and the visions for the coming year. Talk profits. And losses. You talk products and services you might be pushing out in the next year. You talk how you should treat your employees. You set your vision out. You explain to them what you want, what you would like, and they all nod. Everything looks good. They all nod in agreement. You get up, you leave. You found out later that every one of the members of the board is working to get you off the board. Every one of the members of the board is seeking to undermine your vision. They want you gone. They want you out of there. They don't like you. Yet they sat there and they nodded their heads. I think a lot of Christians today feel like that. We approach life with good faith. We go talk to non-Christians and we're like, we assume you mean well. We assume you like us. But for the last several years, we have seen that that is not the case. Like the man in the board meeting, many of us leave and find out later that the, Christians, the non-Christians really have no interest in us having a place at the table. They have no desire for us to be there, okay? And this is what is called, what one guy calls a negative world. And the guy's Aaron Wren. He's a thinker out in Indianapolis, and he wrote this paper a while back called The Positive, Neutral, and Negative World, okay? Positive world is where Christians are viewed as a positive good. And for most of Western history, this has been the case. We're seen as the good people. We pray in public. The civil authorities pray. Our documents are based on Scripture. Jesus is mentioned in court rulings. And this has been the case for centuries. Then you move to a neutral world where all of us are at the same table. And I'll put that in quotes because it doesn't really work that way. Maybe the best example of this was the prayer after 9-11 in the National Cathedral where George Bush brought in all these different faiths and we all prayed together and everybody was there in this sort of neutral feel to it. Okay? Now, though, we live in a negative world where Christianity is not just seen as something odd but is seen as a threat seen as a danger, something to be eradicated, something to be put away, something that is not healthy and good for society. We are a virus. The world sees us that way. First Peter is written to Christians living in a negative world. It is written to Christians who are not a majority. They're a minority. They are oppressed. They lose their jobs. They go to prison. They lose their possessions. They are mocked. They are scorned. First Peter is written to us. It's written to us in the world we live in. And this is one of the reasons why I chose this particular book. Because I feel like as you read through it, you see glimpses of what we are going to have to endure and wisdom as to how we're supposed to live in a world that does not like us. In a world that does not see us as a positive good. A world that sees us as a negative, a drawback, something to be dealt with and eradicated. So I'm going to begin just giving some context for 1 Peter, and then we're going to work through the first two verses. And really, to be honest, I'm only going to focus on two words in these first two verses. So I'm going to give a little exegesis of verses 1 and 2, but I'm going to focus on two specific, specific words 
in these first two verses. So let's understand the context for 1 Peter. It was written by Peter. Uh, that should be obvious. It takes a lot of years of scholarship to undo that idea. Okay, it was written by Peter. Peter and Paul were both martyred during Nero's persecution, which began in the summer of AD 64. So Peter obviously wrote before that. Paul was in prison in Rome. Peter wrote from Rome. Paul was in prison in Rome, probably 61, 62 AD, and then he got out of prison. And Peter doesn't mention Paul, and Paul doesn't mention Peter. So more than likely, Peter wrote from Rome between 62 and 64 AD. Who did he write to? Well, this is actually a source of much contention. Were they Jews or were they Gentiles? And my opinion, after pouring over stuff, is just that it's probably a mix of both. There's a lot of Jew allusions to the Old Testament in 1 Peter. If you know 1 Peter, there's a lot of allusions to it. Not just normal ones, too. Some obscure allusions to the Old Testament there. So I think there were certainly some Jews or well-trained Gentiles in the, the areas that Peter's writing to. More than likely, it was a mixed congregation. These people had been dispersed from Jerusalem, dispersed from Israel, and were living north. It was written to an area up of about a, around 150,000 square miles, possibly more. These cities take up that much room. And they were trade routes. So these were trade routes that this, the people would go on, and Peter would send his letter along these trade routes. More than likely, they would get the, they'd get the letter, copy it, read it, copy it, and then send it on to the next church, and they'd read it and copy it and so on. And this is up in modern-day Turkey. If you know your map, it's up in modern-day Turkey. Okay? It's interesting. The letter really isn't addressed to churches per se. It's addressed to individual Christians. Now, obviously, churches play a part in this, but it's not like the church at Ephesus or the church at Colossae. It's addressed to Christians, and that's because it's primarily about Christians and how they interact with the world. It's about the body of believers as people out in the world. Okay, not that there's nothing to deal with the institutional church, but it's really about the body of believers as they interact out in the world and what they do out in the world. Okay, so that's really the emphasis of the book. There, is a, there are some sections on here, in here about elders and things, but overall the emphasis is on us as individual Christians when we walk out that doors, how we interact and react with the world. Okay, that's kind of Peter's focus. Peter begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, his status as an apostle. He doesn't really emphasize this in the book. He kind of downplays it a little bit, in fact, in certain places. When he talks about elders, he calls himself a fellow elder. He says, I'm a fellow elder, which is kind of a strange thing for the apostle Peter to say because Peter was not just an apostle. He was maybe the preeminent or certainly among the top three apostles. But he kind of downplays that. But nonetheless, here at the beginning, he emphasizes that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. This letter comes with apostolic authority. And that little phrase of Jesus Christ is never attached to any other office. Okay? You don't see deacons of Jesus Christ or elders of Jesus Christ, or bishops of Jesus Christ, that's only attached to the apostolic office, giving it a lot of authority. And that's kind of what Peter's saying here. I am an apostle, hear me. And that's always what these guys are kind of emphasizing at the beginning of the books. And it's written, to, uh, the emphasis in the book is not on Peter's authority, but rather the identity of the Christians. Okay? And here it's a little awkward in a lot of our text, but... Verse 1 literally reads, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect pilgrims. Okay, in a lot of our texts, the elect, the word elect is further down in the text. But here it is, they're side by side. And those are the two words I want to focus on. Elect Christians, or elect pilgrims, chosen strangers. Okay, Peter's emphasis is on who we are and how our identity in Christ drives our actions and our reactions in the world. That is kind of his emphasis. Who are we in Jesus? What did Jesus do? Who are we in Jesus? And how does that drive and dictate our actions and our reactions? So it begins with our identity. That's where he starts. And that's really what verses 1 through 2 are all about. Who are we in Christ? All right? And we are chosen strangers, elect 
pilgrims. The word I've, the word, I mean, there's a, little, a lot of ways you could translate that second word. That I've chosen the word strangers. I think that's the best word to use for that. Some translations have pilgrims, some have sojourners, some have exiles. Strangers seems to me the best translation. Okay, but let's begin with the word chosen or elect, which again is often down in verse two, but it's right before the word pilgrims in the Greek text. All right, it's chosen. The word chosen is a covenantal language. It connects this group of people to Old Testament Israel. This will come up over and over in the book. Peter emphasizes the connection between these saints and the saints of old. You are now the priesthood. You are now the church. You are now the one offering spiritual sacrifices. You are now the daughters of Sarah. Okay? You are sons of Abraham and daughters of Abraham. That's what he emphasizes in this. It is covenant language. You have been chosen by God. How we behave in the world does not begin with our relationship with the world. How we behave in the world begins with our relationship with God. It always begins with the vertical, not the horizontal. That's where we start, and that's where Peter starts here. You are chosen God's chosen people. And we see this throughout the Old Testament when he uses this type of language. A great example of this is Deuteronomy 7. I'll just read this to you guys. Where he uses this exact language of being chosen and then leads to certain actions, okay? The Lord does not, did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments, and he repays those who hate, those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will pay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments, the judgments, and the statutes which I command you today to observe them. So it always goes from being to doing. It's always who we are and then what we are supposed to do. That's the process in Scripture. And that's exactly the process that Peter is emphasizing here. You also see this in the Ten Commandments where Moses says, or what God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, don't worship idols. Don't, don't kill each other. You know, don't bear false witness. So it always goes from who we are to what we are to do. That's the process. So to understand how you're supposed to live, you must first understand that you are chosen. You are one of God's chosen people. An election here, and the word is elect in 1 Peter. Election here, the New Testament writers do not approach election usually the way we tend to approach it. We tend to approach election like some sort of secret Thing hidden away somewhere. And then we've got to dig it up and figure it out. That's not what Peter does here. Peter's like, if you're here and you're baptized, you're chosen. And that's how Paul does it too. If you're here and you're baptized, you're chosen. That's how it works. Okay? If, and I remember years ago when certain controversies were swirling, I thought to myself, if I ought to be able to address the people of God the way Peter and Paul address the people of God, and if your theology causes me not to be able to do that, then something's wrong. Okay? So who are the chosen? You're the chosen. You're God's people. You're the chosen one. And that's kind of how Peter addresses. He doesn't go into all this sort of strange, well, maybe, maybe not, and put people in a place of no assurance. He tells them, you are the elect. You hear this letter, you read this letter, you are the elect, you're the chosen ones. Our election, our being chosen in Christ, is a key sign of God's grace. And again, this is why Peter begins here. It is a key sign of God's grace. We have not been chosen because of how great we are. We have not been chosen because of how many, how many people are here or how large we are or how good looking our hair is. We have not been chosen for any of these reasons. We have been chosen because God was kind 
to us. God was merciful to us. It's easy to forget this, especially when we have success, especially when things are going well. It's easy to forget this. Church is growing. Our children are doing well, whatever the case may be. It's easy as time moves on to begin to rewrite our history as not a series of, God, series of God's kindnesses to us, but as a series of our successes. At the very beginning, Peter wants you to understand you are chosen. It is God's grace to you that you are here. It is his mercy and his kindness to you. It is not your effort. Now, again, this is not an exhortation to antinomianism. It's not an exhortation to be lazy and good works. The Lord encourages us to good works. But it's an exhortation to remember those good works and all your successes that you see in your Christian life come from the kindness of God. They come from his mercy and his grace. If you want to see a good illustration of how this can happen, you can read screw tape letters. Remember the screw tape letters of C.S. Lewis? The temptations at the beginning are very different from the temptations that the demon gives to the guy at the end. Okay? And that's how it is in our Christian life. We can pass tests here and we move along, but the tests don't stop. And I think there are dangers that come with success in the Christian life. There are things that can occur. Our hearts can kind of turn away from the kindness of God and assume that we got here of our own merit, that we got here because we are really better than everybody else, because our denomination really is better, our church really is better, my family really is better. Of course, we don't say that out loud because we know saying out loud would not be good. We know there's something wrong with it at a base level. Something's off. That's not how we're supposed to believe. But nonetheless, in our hearts, sometimes it's easy to believe that. So we need to guard our hearts against being blind to God's continuing grace. And this little word chosen does that. Why are we here? Because God chose us. God reached down in his mercy and his kindness and said, you belong to me. I'm not going to let you go that way. You belong to me. Peter is giving his readers the proper compass at the beginning of the epistle. They belong to the Lord. This shapes everything about our lives. You are God's chosen people set apart by his grace. Therefore, here's how God's people suffer. Here's how God's people endure unjust actions. Here's how a godly woman who has been chosen by God endures a marriage to an unbelieving husband. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 3. Here is how godly elders who are chosen by God shepherd the flock of God, and so on. So the first thing is we are chosen, and this is the first ident identifying mark of who we are. Because we are chosen, therefore we are strangers. And this is what Peter says here, to the elect strangers, or chosen strangers, that's the way I've chosen to um, uh, translate that, to the chosen strangers of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay? Our relation with God defines our relationship with the world. Okay? Because we have been chosen by God, therefore we are strangers to the world. Right? Strangers to the world. Now, before we get into that, probably need to do a little bit of a demolition job on the word strangers. When I was growing up, a while ago, when I was growing up, a lot of preachers would come through, especially in revival, and talk, in times of revival, and they would talk about this word stranger, and it carried a lot of weight. We're just strangers in this world. We're just passing through. We're pilgrims getting to the other side. Okay, and that was the whole emphasis. And what happened with that word stranger is it began to gut us and keep us from doing anything out in the world. Okay? So it wasn't, it was like the Great Commission and those things became only about the saving of souls. And this word stranger, exile, those words like that became ways for Christians to avoid doing, taking dominion. The ways for Christians to avoid doing the things that the Lord Jesus had told us not to do. 
This led to a refusal to get involved in earthly things. We're just strangers here. What does politics matter? What does journalism matter? What does architecture matter? We're just strangers here. None of that really matters. All that matters is making sure your soul goes from A to B, <laughs> making sure you get saved, and then you hang on, and then you get to heaven. That was sort of the emphasis. Well, obviously, this is not a biblical concept. And I think a lot of Christians are beginning to realize that. We see a lot of good things arising in that area. People are getting involved in things again. But what does it mean to be a stranger? Okay. Peter does use the word. He uses the word twice here in this book, to be strangers. What does it mean to be a stranger? Well, a lot of times we ask a question like that. If you keep reading, you'll find the answer. And 1 Peter 2.11 is the other place he uses this word. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, that's the word strangers again, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. We are not strangers to the earth. The earth belongs to Jesus. The meek shall inherit the earth. We're not strangers to the earth. What we are strangers to is unbelieving society. That is Peter's point. When you're around sin, you should feel odd. You should feel out of place. Right? So he says... I, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust. Because you are a stranger, don't sin. Okay? So the emphasis is never, the, the dichotomy is never between the physical and spiritual. That's not the dichotomy. And that's kind of what happened back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s with dispensationalism. The dichotomy became, came between the physical and the spiritual. Okay? The dichotomy in the Christian life is between righteousness and unrighteousness. Between holiness and unholiness. So when Peter says we are strangers, he is saying you should ha not have fellowship with the unbelieving society, with unbelieving world, the world, with the way they think, with what they love, with what they do. Okay? The unbelieving world is not uh, is where we are, we are to be strangers to the unbelieving world. And you see this also in 1 John where it talks about do not love the world or anything of the world. And we're going to think, okay, what is he talking about there? Well, he says the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's what you're not to love, okay? He's not talking about your car. He's not talking about politics. He's not talking about journalism. He's talking about sin. You are not to love sin. You're not to be comfortable with sin. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here. He's saying you're not supposed to be comfortable with sin. You're not supposed to be comfortable in, with sinners, right, and in an unbelieving society. So the goal here is not really to make us hate the earth and hate the world and hate all these physical things around us. The goal is to make us hate sin. Okay, we'll talk about that a little more in a minute. All right. So we're chosen strangers. Uh, we're chosen by God and his kindness and his grace has chosen us. And therefore, because we are chosen by him, we will be strangers to unbelieving society. And remember, in the world that Peter's writing to and the Christians Peter's writing to, they are the minority. Most of society, just like we live in today, most of society is opposed to God. Most of society. So where they go, they are going to feel out of place. They are going to feel awkward. They are going to be strangers. All right? So Peter goes on to say that they're of the dispersion. And that just means they're scattered. And this became a, a common sort of term for the uh, Jews in the exile. They're scattered about. Some people think it's a literal dispersion. Certainly there were some Christians in that area that had been cast out of Jerusalem. But it wasn't. Uh, it could also just be a metaphorical dispersion. Like we're we are scattered about. No longer are we worshiping Jerusalem. No longer are we worshiping in one spot. But we have been scattered abroad. We are out there in the world, and that's kind of the picture that Peter's painting there. And then he says he gives three sort of phrases to describe our conversion. 
Three phrases to describe our conversion to Christ. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling, uh, sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. All three of these are a reference to something that happened in the past to these people. It's not a reference to something coming in the future. It is what has already been done. They have already been elect. Obviously, we know that one. But they've also already been sanctified. And we'll look at some other passages that indicate that. And then the four obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ is also a reference to their conversion. So all of this is unpacking what is meant by the word chosen. What does it mean you're chosen? Well, you, you have the foreknowledge of God, you have the sanctification of the Spirit, you have the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to briefly, each one of these is a sermon in and of itself. I'm just going to briefly touch on each of these, not spend a lot of time on them. Okay. But elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge is always about covenantal love. Again, God's covenantal kindness as he reached down and uh, chose these people. It's his goodness and his kindness to us. It is a picture of, of love, really, is what it's a picture of. A picture of God's love for his people and choosing them. And I think of Zephaniah with this. Uh, we often have this picture of God as a not very kind sometimes. But there's a great passage in Zephaniah, which... Hopefully I can find it here. <laughs> Zephaniah is not one of those you probably pick up and read. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, now I can't find it. I didn't say that. There we go. Okay. All right. So this is, uh, this is, again, about God's choosing Israel. And it's a beautiful picture of foreknowledge. It's a beautiful picture of what does foreknowledge mean. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This is a beautiful picture of God's choosing of us, his foreknowledge of us, his delight in us. Okay, that is the picture that you want to get from that foreknowledge of God. It's not some cold, stony, blind, reaching out, grabbing people. That's not what's happening here. It is a love for these people, a warm affection for us that lead, led to our salvation in Christ. All right? Then he says the sanctification of the Spirit. And again, we usually think of sanctification as something progressive, something that happens over the length of our Christian life. But often, in several places, sanctification is used as something that is done at the beginning of the Christian life, in particular in 1 Corinthians. And Paul uses it twice there. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, he says to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Past tense, already sanctified, okay? already done. Not something coming, but something that's already done. And then he does it again over in chapter 6, verse 11. You guys might be more familiar with this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. Okay? Well, these people aren't sinless yet, but they were sanctified. And that's how Peter's using the word here. He's using the word as the beginning of the Christian life. We are set apart by the Holy Spirit to follow after Jesus. That's what sanctification means in this context. We are made holy because the Spirit is in us. Okay? It is not an indication of progressive holiness, but one point in time holiness that's given to us by the Spirit. It's almost a synonym for justification in this particular passage, a synonym for justification. And then the final thing is for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And again, we might think obedience. A lot of trans commentators talk about this being progressive obedience. I don't think that's the case. I think this is obedience to the gospel. 
They obeyed the gospel. Again, we see this in Peter himself in chapter 1, verse 22. He says, since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit. So this is about obedience to the gospel. It's not about God. God did save you to obey. Okay, that is part of the message, but not the point of this passage. This passage is you obeyed the gospel and therefore you have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. All of these three passages, all three, these three lines are about our conversion, are being brought into the body of Jesus Christ, are being made ready to obey, ready to follow, ready to endure the suffering. It's all about God's kindness to us, God choosing us, God electing us, God sanctifying us, and God sprinkling us. All right, so three things here at the end. I want to give you two warnings and then three ways we can stay strangers in the world. Three ways we can stay strangers in the world. All right, just two warnings, and this is, first one's a little, just, I'm just going to echo what Pastor Garner said a few weeks ago about the, um, and the story of the narrow gate. He said, just because you're odd, he didn't say this, I'm not quoting Pastor Garner. But he said something like this. This is a paraphrase. Okay, loose, loose, loose rendition. All right. He said, just because you're odd doesn't make you righteous. Okay? So you read the word stranger. We're supposed to be strangers. We're supposed to be odd in the world. We're supposed to look odd. And we kind of interpret that as I'm just supposed to be weird. Okay? No. Being weird doesn't make you holy. Your odd eating habits, your odd dress habits, your odd grooming habits, fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being odd. We're all odd in some ways. But that doesn't mean you're being righteous. That's not what the Bible means when it says you're strangers. Okay? That's not what it means. I think Pastor Garner said it doesn't mean you wear your pants on your head. Yes, you don't. That's not the good idea. Okay, so just because, I think Reformed folks, I don't know. I don't know what it is about us sometimes. But we tend to get, we tend to like being odd. Maybe it's just like we've got a martyr complex and everybody look at us or whatever. I don't know what it is. But when the Bible talks about us being strangers and pilgrims, being out of step with the world, it is not talking about those things. So just because people look at you strangely does not necessarily indicate that you're following Jesus. It might just mean you need to comb your hair. Or you need to do something normal. Okay, that might mean. Yeah. Now, on a more serious note, the second warning is, if you find yourself becoming comfortable around sin, no longer a stranger to sin, there should be alarms going off in your head. If you find yourself with people who are not Christians, who are going to do non-Christian things, that's, that's what they do, okay, are going to do non-Christian things, and all of a sudden you find yourself comfortable with the sin they're committing, comfortable with a dirty joke, comfortable with the disrespect to parents, comfortable with shady business dealings. Okay? And this is what happens. We're strangers. We're odd. We, we understand that. We know that. We're out of step with the world. But as time moves on, we don't like it so much. It's uncomfortable for us. And all of a sudden, we decide, hey, I really would like to sit in the seat of the scoffer. Maybe I will go do that. Maybe that's a little easier than sitting here and resisting all the time, fighting all the time. You should always feel out of place around sin. It should always make you uncomfortable. It should bother you. And if it doesn't, there's an issue. If it doesn't, your heart's become hard to something. Okay? It doesn't mean you don't hang out with sinners. Okay? Obviously, Paul says this, Corinthians, we've got to be in the world. And Peter's going to say the same thing. There's a temptation with Christians to either assimilate or withdraw okay? when it comes to the world. Assimilate or withdraw. And I'm warning you against the assimilation part. The assimilation part. Do not assimilate with the world. If you find yourself enjoying sinful company, something's gone wrong. There's a problem there. So guard your hearts against that. Guard your hearts against no longer being strangers to the world, no longer being strangers to the sin. Always, again, I'll emphasize this. I'll say this again at the end. We should always 
be strangers to sin. It should never be something we're comfortable with. Obviously our sin, but the sin of others as well. And the sin they want to pull us into. All right, pull us into. And Peter says this explicitly. He says, talking about all the, and this is in chapter four, he talks about all these drunk parties and everything that's going on, lewdness, lust, all this stuff. And he says, in regard to these things, they think it's strange you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. And that should be, the, that should be what the world says about us. How weird is it that you don't join us in our sins? And if you are, there's a problem. Okay, all right, enough on that. So what are three areas we can stay strange? What are three areas we're strange to the world? And two of these I'm going to pull from outside the text, and then one I'm going to pull directly from 1 Peter, okay? So first of all, and I think this is maybe the most obvious one, is if you look at the front of your bulletin, what's the, what's the Christ Church motto? You should all be able to chant it, right? Christ. Worship orchestrates life. I don't think we understand how strange worship is to the unbelieving world. How odd it is that we gather here every Sunday drag all our kids in here, drag car seats, make sure everybody has decent clothes on. Some of you drive a long ways. There's people that drive a long ways. And we come in here, we sit, we listen to a guy talk. <laughs> me, this morning. Listen to me talk. We eat bread and wine. We, sometimes we throw water on babies. What's that all about? You know, we do all this sort of stuff. How weird is that? How strange to the world. Why are you not playing golf? Why are you not getting an appetizer tray ready for the NFL game this afternoon? Why are you here? How odd is that? And I think our worship is one of those places it's easy to take for granted, but it's one of those areas where we are very strange to the world. When I worked at a grocery store, our most profitable day was Sunday. And it wasn't Sunday at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It was Sunday at 9 o'clock in the morning and 10 o'clock in the morning. People were out and about. Okay? They, want, they don't want to be held down to this. Okay? So worship is central. Worship is one of those ways we are strange. Because we're chosen by God, we do this strange thing where we gather every Sunday and we sing and we pray and we kneel. We do this strange thing. And to the world, it should be strange. And it will be strange. Unbelieving society has no concept of this and doesn't understand it. It's weird and strange to them. Okay. The second place we can stay strange is by our view of men and women. This is a pretty obvious one. Um, I don't think there's any place in our society as rotten, as twisted as the views of men and women are today out in the world. If you hold to a basic Christian teaching on men and women, they will think you are awful. It's just, we've seen this over and over and over again. The most basic teachings in the Bible, the most obvious verses in Scripture about the roles of men and women, who men and women are, how they're supposed to relate to one another, the most obvious ones are hated by unbelieving society. If you teach your children this, they will be strange. They will be looked at quizzically. You, you do what? You want to have babies? Why? Why do you want to do that? I think of a couple of reasons. But why? Okay. You dress this way? Wives, I honestly think, submitting to your husband is probably one of the most strange acts in our society that you can do. There are so many brash, obnoxious women out there. No gentle and quiet spirit. No gentle and quiet heart. So many out there. And you ladies, I thought about this a lot, especially when I was reading 1 Peter 3 recently. You ladies, in your treatment of your husband, in your love for him and your respect for him, you are strange to the world. Why would you do that? Why would you put yourself under his boot like that? Don't you know you're just under his boot? He's stomping you down. So in our relationship, in our views of men and women, this is one of the areas where we are going to be strangers to the world. And you just got to accept this. And this has got to be part of what you got to deal with. We're not, the world is not going to be convinced 
outside of their hearts being changed and them coming to the scriptures that what we, our views of men and women are correct, that what, the vision we have for our sons and daughters is correct. They're not going to be convinced of that. Okay? You are going to be looked at as odd, and that's just something you got to live with. And our kids, I think especially our children, need to be aware of this. Okay? It's easy in the home when everybody's there together to be like, yes, this is what we believe. But when you get out in the world and you go to college or you go talking to people at your job, and they're like, you do what? You want to do what with your life, young ladies? So our views of men and women, one way we stay strange. And then the key way in Peter that we're strangers to the world is our view of suffering. Okay, and this is the key theme in Peter. And it's interesting that we're doing James in the men's forum and 1 Peter here because James and 1 Peter strike a lot of the same notes. So I guess the Lord wanted you guys to hear this, okay? Um, James and Peter, 1 Peter strike a lot of the same notes. For the unbelieving world, all suffering is meaningless, unnecessary intrusion in their lives. Suffering has no meaning. And therefore, their task is to avoid suffering at all costs. I do not want to suffer. I will do whatever I can to avoid suffering. I want my life to be easy. I do not want it to be hard. Okay? That is the view of majority of people in the world. As Christians, that is not our view. That is not our approach. We are willing to endure suffering for certain things. Suffering is not to be avoided at all costs. Ease and comfort is not the greatest good. That is not the greatest good. So one of the ways we stay strange is by how we view suffering. And we all suffer. We all go through hardships. Some of you have been some, through some very difficult, painful situations in your life. How you endure that is what sets you apart from the world. We are strange to the world not only because we are willing to suffer, but because we view suffering as a good thing in our lives. It is the way God shapes us. It is the way God makes us more like Jesus. It is the way he separates us from our sinful tendencies. Without suffering, we would not grow. Without suffering, this is part of the, the uh, theme of James, and we'll see this here in 1 Peter as well. Without suffering, we, we, we would not grow. We will not be as holy as we could be without suffering. So suffering is one of those places where we as Christians can say to the world, we're not like that. We have a different path. We lean into our suffering, and we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the suffering. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you endure various trials. We thank the Lord for the suffering. We don't just endure it, but we lean into it, and we thank the Lord for it. So, really, I just focus on two words here. You are God's chosen people. You are strangers in the world. You have been chosen by him. You've been elected by him. You've been sanctified by him. You've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, we are to live as strangers in the world, and that means we do not feel comfortable in unbelieving society. Sin always bothers us. It always is awkward. And that is what Peter is teaching us in this passage. That is where he wants his, his readers to start there with who they are as God's chosen people and strangers in the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word to us. It is easy to hear and often hard to do. We do not like feeling out of place. We do not like feeling uncomfortable in situations. We do not like being looked at as odd or strange or out of step. We ask, Father in heaven, that you would help us to embrace this calling as your people, help us to be okay, even delight in the fact that we are different from the world, and help us, Lord, to avoid a love of sin. Help us to always remember that you've chosen us and set us apart to follow after you and be strange to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.